Hello and welcome to the Landing Theater New Works podcast, where in each episode we learn about a new play with the help of the world's leading expert in that play, the person who wrote it. I'm Brendan Borkshiel, playwright-in-residence for The Landing, and today I'm talking to Spencer Huffman about his new play, The Baseball Gods, which was, of course, an official selection for The Landing's 2021 New American Voices Playwriting Festival, and also a semi-finalist in the National Playwrights Conference at the O'Neill Center. In addition to being a playwright, Spencer is an actor and director based in Chicago. He graduated from Kenyon College in the school at Steppenwolf. He's done residencies at the Marble House in the Malay Colony, and at the time of our conversation, he was in the middle of one at the Kerouac Project. He's an ensemble member for the Bramble Theatre Company, and especially relevant to this conversation, he is a player, a sometimes coach, and a lifelong fan of the game of baseball. I remember in my first time reading The Baseball Gods just having so much respect for the craftsmanship of it and how truthful and alive it felt even on the page. It felt like I was reading about two young men who I've most definitely seen in my life, but I was getting to see parts of them that I hadn't before. You know how it's sometimes really hard to tell the difference between a really competent forgery and a truly authentic piece? but you do somehow instinctually know the difference. Well, this is one where I definitely felt a powerful, instinctual sense of this being an authentic window into a life experience I hadn't lived. I went into this conversation really hoping we would get into some of the deeper philosophical underpinnings of the game of baseball, and I absolutely think Spencer delivers on that. In this interview, and especially in the play this interview is about, I think Spencer's love and insight for the game is infectious, and I'm positive the next time I watch a baseball game, I'll think about this play. But of course, it's not exactly a play about baseball as much as it is one that uses baseball as the conduit for some larger themes like coming of age, like loss, like how young men manage and express vulnerability. And in this interview, we hit on all those things. We also get into some good craft stuff about writing physicality into your script and telling the story of a relationship between two people in a nonlinear way. There are also, for what it's worth, a couple really solid takes on sports movies in here. Heads up, we talk broadly about some spoilers in the play, so if you missed the landings reading and you want to read the script beforehand, go do that. It's currently available for download on newplayexchange.org. Okay, enough from me. Let's hear from Spencer. I have a question since you're in residency, and and actually, let's back up. You're in residency. Can you talk about where you are? Yeah, I uh, I'm in Orlando, Florida, of all places, which was sort of like shit talk to me before I got here. Uh, <laughs> but it's, it's pretty nice. <laughs> I mean, it's not you know, it's not uh, you know, I wouldn't take a vacation here, but people were talking about it like it was just like a total, it's like a terrible place. But it's Florida pretty- gets a lot of bad press. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, so it's, so it's pretty nice. Yeah, I'm at a place called uh, the Jack Kerouac Project. Shout out to them. They're awesome. It's a writer's residency. So not general artists, only, only writers can apply. And they take four writers a year, one for each season. So one for the fall, one winter, etc. Wow. And, and it's long, too. It go, it, mine runs, I got here March 1st, and it runs until May 20th. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. It's long and, and you're alone. Like it's literally a season of your life. It is. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I'm like a Florida resident. I'm living <laughs> <laughs> except, you know, I don't need to pay for the house I'm living in, which is awesome. And then they give you, you know, they give you a little bit of money for food, uh, which makes it plausible for uh, me to do. 
so yeah, I'm here and I'm writing every day. Right now, that's the routine I've got going. I write from sort of mid-morning until two o'clock or so, two, maybe three. Um, I have lunch in there and then I stop. I try to do it in a block and then give myself some time off. Um, not that it's like arduous. It's the writer's residency, but it, you know, you, you, you stop having good ideas after a little while. Do you have like a go-to recharging thing, reconnecting with the world outside of here thing or what? Yeah, I mean, I take as many walks as I can because it's nice to get outside and see other people. And I love going to the driving range and hitting golf balls. I'm a big fan of that. Anything oh, yeah. physical, I exercise. Yeah, and try to stay off my computer, although that's can be hard. My question about being in residency is because I just got like a first residency uh, that's coming up. And uh, I was happy for a second and then immediately terrified that I was going to waste it or screw it up. Mm -hmm. And any tips in terms of a game plan you went in with or things that you found along the way that help optimize what you've got? Sure. Do I have tips for residency? Um, Yeah, I, I think I do. I would say, you know, like embrace the feeling that you ought to produce something while you're there. Probably you'll definitely feel that because they're giving you something. And so feels like you ought to give them something back, even if they never see it or there's no presentation or whatever, because that will, that will keep you, you know, sitting in the chair and uh, continuing to sort of dive in um, even when you don't want to really. Mm-hmm. And then I'm, and then beyond that, I, I, you know, I think it comes down to the individual. I've been at residencies with other artists who work really sporadically, you know, they'll take like days off at a time and then they'll work for full days at a time. I'm pretty routine oriented. So I try to, you know, I try to do basically the same thing every day. And then it's a sign if dinner time rolls around and I'm thinking about writing something, then it feels good to go back to the computer and write it because I know it's not part of my routine, right? I know that there's actually something urgent and I'm not just sort of trying to scrape the bottom. So yeah. And then, yeah, but then also like enjoy it. You know, I, I was at the Malay colony, which is in New York state, another huge shout out to them. They're awesome. I was there this past fall and it was October in upstate New York, you know, just extraordinarily beautiful. And so I spent a lot of time outside and I think it's a good idea to, uh, to do that um, despite uh, the the pressing need to produce work. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's what I'd say. Have you always been a very heavily routine oriented writer? I guess so. I mean, I'm, you know, I, I always feel like a little, a little bit like a fraud when I talk, when people ask me about like, you know, what, what, what my method is, because I haven't been doing, I've, I've been writing seriously for five years. Mm-hmm. And so, and the first two years were not real, you know, they were sort of getting accustomed to writing on a regular basis. And I wrote a lot of crap and, you know, you just, there's like a growing period there. So mm-hmm. Yes, I think now, now for like the last three years, I'm much more routine oriented. But the change of scenery for me helps a helps a huge amount. Like getting out of my house, I don't yeah. I don't typically write in my house anyways, um, or my, my my apartment. And but during with coronavirus, there's hardly anywhere else to write. So residency is just like like the biggest gift for me right now. So yeah, I, I guess I am routine oriented now. Are you routine oriented? I can be. I, I think I cycle in and out of, uh, yeah, here's what I do. I come up with a game plan and like a program for myself and it 
takes from all the, you know, interviews and self-help I've gleaned in the last year or month or whatever, and I assemble something and I stick rigidly to it and I slowly get more and more chaotic and disorganized and inadherent to it uh, until I get to a point where I have to check myself and then I build a new program and I go through cycles like that, basically. Right, right. But you talked about how uh, you had this certain feeling when people ask about your writer habits of being a fraud, which first of all is the first way I know you're legit. I, I think <laughs> suspicion of being a fraud, but I was planning on asking because you are a multi-hyphenate artist. You're also a director, also an actor. Do you feel like you own one of those identities more than the other two? Uh, do you own them equally? At, at this point in my career, I'd say I'm a writer who also directs and acts, but I think I try to keep saying that I'm a writer, director, and actor, even though the majority of my work right now is writing because because I want to do all three of them in some way. And, and I think it also makes me better at each of the respective modes. Uh, when I'm practicing as a writer, I think I'm a better director. When I'm practicing as a director, I think I'm a better yeah. actor. But yeah, I, I, think, I think I'm a writer first, maybe actor last, because I don't really like auditioning. <laughs> yeah, I get that. That's half the reason to get into writing, right? Is to not have to audition. Um, Do you look at certain people, certain career tracks, like I don't know a Tracy Letts or somebody like that and go like, oh, that's a model that I'm interested in in replicating? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, particularly in Chicago, Tracy Letts, uh, (laughs) you know, he's a, you know, one of the most famous playwrights ever to come out of Chicago and his career is totally enviable. Um, so yeah, I mean, yeah, if, if I, if I could have a career like Tracy Letts' career, that would be really cool. That would be mm-hmm. awesome. Best case scenario. Well, you're writing more than he is right now. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about the baseball gods. Sweet. Love this play. I've gone back to it in my head, you know, a lot over the past couple months since the, since first reading it and since a script selection committee picked it. If you don't play baseball and watch a lot of baseball, you are a really competent faker. But I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that there's been some baseball in your life. Is that true? What's your experience with the game? Uh, yeah, definitely true. Uh, I played I played baseball my whole life until I got. I mean, yeah, until high school when I uh, I, I did a few of the recruitment camps where you go and there's like every college coach there, mostly from D three D two places and. I did a couple of those, but the, the season before I'd suffered a, a lower back injury that was just took a long time to get over. And then I had bicep tendonitis, which was terrible. And again, just takes a long time to go to go away and you can't throw when you have bicep mm-hmm. tendonitis. So it was a combination of poorly timed injuries and also realizing that I maybe didn't want to play, spend so much time playing baseball in college. So then I... I played until I finished high school, but after that, I, I, I stopped. But yeah, I played Little League. I played travel ball. I, I, I'm a big Seattle Mariners fan because I grew up in Portland, Oregon. And uh, so, yeah, baseball has been a big part of my life. What position? I pitched and I played third base. Um, more and more third base as I got older because when I was in Little League, I, was, I grew really early. So I was a big kid. I was just, I'm about six feet tall and I was as tall as I am now in seventh grade. So I was just like throwing so much harder than anyone else. Mm. Um, and I felt like I was a real, real beast, <laughs> but then <laughs> but then everyone caught up and, 
And by the time I was in high school, uh, I, I was still throwing hard enough to pitch at that level, but I was on sort of in the lower half in terms of high school pitchers velocity. So I transitioned more and more to, to third base. So at least for some moment in your life, you were thinking, I'm going to play college ball. Uh, did you think maybe even go, go beyond that? Did you think this is going to be my life? I mean, w- when I was a little kid, I did in the way that I think so many little kids can. Yeah, I wanted, I want, I mean, you know, I, I sort of, I, I turned six years old when Ichiro Suzuki was in his rookie year, his 2001 season, hmm. which was one of his best seasons. He won rookie of the year that, he, oh, well, he played on the Mariners, first of all, which is my team. He won rookie of the year and most valuable player. And he, I think he had set the hit record, season hit record that year too. And the team was really good, and they made it to the playoffs and lost for the Yankees in the um, ALCS. So, but that was, um, you know, that was like the first year where I could really, where I was old enough to really follow a team, and they were such an epic team. And the Northwest hadn't really seen a Mariners team like that before. So I was hooked. I was hooked early there. And yeah, I did. I did want to play pro ball. But one of the reasons I wrote this play, actually, was because I remember it's sort of like um, realizing you're if you really love baseball and you want to play pro ball, realizing you're not going to play pro ball, that it's impossible or probably impossible is sort of like it's sort of like finding out that Santa Claus doesn't exist or something Mm -hmm. like that. It's so crushing. It was so, so crushing. And it's worse because it happens slowly. You know, you get that doubt in your mind first. You're like, well, maybe I'm, maybe I won't be good enough. And by the time you're, you know, in sixth, seventh grade, you're like, man, I don't think I, I don't think I can do this. Um, I don't think I'm cut out. You know, I I don't think I'm committed enough. And those are big things to realize (laughs) as a, as a little kid. That was sort of the initial thought that led Mm. to this play. Yeah. It's a milestone. It's a, I think I had a similar thing with music. Uh, mm. I was playing, you know, classical music. And there's the level where you're just, you happen to have perfect pitch or whatever, and that puts you head and shoulders above the beginners. Mm-hmm. And then you start working at it. You start identifying yourself with it and dedicating yourself to it. But there's a level of dedication beyond what you're willing to put in, which is the people who go into a practice room every day, all day. And you're like, oh, I'm not one of those yeah, it's like it's it's a realization not just about your natural talents, but also about your your limited dedication, basically, which is no knock on yourself. But it's just true that there are some people who are going to have the physical gifts and who are also going to chase it like hell. Mm-hmm. And you might just not be cut out for that. So besides realizing that you weren't going to go pro, what sparked the idea for this play? What made you actually sit down to write this thing? Well, I knew I'd wanted, I knew I wanted to write a baseball play for some time because it was just a big part of my life. I was thinking about this idea of a, a boy, a kid figuring out that he's not going to play pro ball. And then I started thinking about the relationship between a pitcher and a catcher uh, because I spent years and years pitching. And there is something uh, special about that relationship. There are all kinds of interesting relationships in baseball, depending on where you play on the field. And but of course, pitcher and catcher is sort of the obvious one. And those bonds can be pretty strong. So I thought that might be a good place to start. I was with a, a pitcher and a catcher who grew up together. And, and then from there, I, uh, 
Uh, yeah, I guess I just started writing. Um, I guess the last thing that I was thinking about was this idea. This is gets a little bit into the weeds, but I'm going to go into it because I think it's interesting. Go into it, yeah. I was, I was thinking about how the engine of the game for baseball is the act of the pitcher delivering pitches. So there's no clock, you know, like in, in basketball or other sports, um, which in that case is the engine for that game. That's what keeps the game. That's what keeps the game going from beginning to end. Otherwise, they would just play forever if it wasn't for the clock. But in baseball, of course, there's no clock. There's innings. But even innings could go on forever. It's a famously um, long game. Yes, it is. <laughs> and it can drag on. So the engine of the game is that act of uh, delivering the pitch. And commonly, a word that baseball people use for the pitch is um, is an offering. You hear, that's a very common thing for announcers to say, and, you know, like, and here comes the next offering. And I thought, like, that verbiage is so interesting, because then you start thinking about each pitch as an offering. Then the exchange between the batter and the pitcher is, while still, while they're still competing, there's something... Um, there's, you know, there's like gifts being given, basically. And not only do you need to give a gift, but you need to give a good gift, which is a strike. The gift has to be possible to hit. It has to be a good gift, which I think is so cool. It's such a great idea for the engine of a game. Yeah. And then when you get to the end of the game, one team wins, which is heartbreaking. One team actually beats the other team, despite hundreds of good faith offerings between, that, that the two teams have exchanged. It's actually because of those offerings that the game ends. That's the engine of the game. That's why we got to the end. I didn't think about any of this until I started writing the play. So I wasn't like a little kid being philosophical <laughs> baseball at all. But once you start writing a play about death and about baseball, these are the kind of things you start thinking about. And I thought that was, there was something really magical about that mechanic. So that's, that's sort of running in the background while I'm writing this, I would say. Is the process of getting from blank page to end of first draft pretty straightforward for you? Were there pretty serious roadblocks along the way? I wouldn't say roadblocks, no. I wrote this play in sort of an unusual way for me. I was also in residence when I wrote the play um, at the Marble House Project in Vermont. Shout out to them. They're awesome. And I just sort of started writing scenes, not worrying about how they would connect. Writing scenes from all different time periods, right? Because in... In the play, we've got uh, it shifts between two different time periods with the boys as um, nine-year-olds and the boys as 19-year-olds. And I was sort of trying to just give myself the freedom to write the scenes, not worry too much about where the play was going. And I wrote, I would say, maybe 60% of the play during that residency without realizing how it would all come together. And then later, I pieced it together. There weren't any significant roadblocks, nothing like that I was losing sleep over. But just like any play, it's hard. It's hard to get it to come together. So, Was there a logic that you came to in terms of figuring out when are the key moments in their past to cut back to? That's assuming the, the, time, the later half of their lives is like the present timeline. Sure. Was there sort of a, a logic in figuring out when, when are the key moments to transition in and out of that past? I guess I discovered those moments as I wrote. There were there were scenes that I wrote and then scrapped because I realized it didn't fit into the story that I was trying to tell. The, the moment their mothers entered the story is when it turns into a play, I think. So I think once, once I've realized that at least one of their mothers and ultimately both of their mothers should be in the play, then it gave a lot more direction to the moments that we needed to see mm -hmm. with them as boys. But 
but it basically it was just moments that would be important to a little kid, especially in terms of baseball. So I've got like the first time they play catch and uh, their first sleepover at each of their homes. Basic, simple stuff like that, that, uh, that would stick in your mind and which might be remembered significantly as, as you get older. One thing that struck me as I was reading it was this feeling of like I was missing out on the physicality, the sound, the balls and the gloves. That's such a huge dimension of this play. Is that something you had to do really mindfully? Was it just because you've grown up with so much baseball in your life? Was it a little bit unconscious for you? How did that layer into the writing? Well, part of it was uh, just that old adage that it's good to give actors an activity. It's good, it's, right? As an actor, it's really great to have an activity. And of course, the play was about baseball, so it would have been it would have been crazy not to put baseball on stage. And that was something I really wanted was to see baseball in a theater space with no with no gimmicks, hopefully, or as few gimmicks as possible. Uh, so yeah, I, I would say that part came pretty naturally. And and but I would I would say that the the difficult part to figure out there was to tie the baseball activity into the action of the play and have it play some role of significance. The obvious example of baseball playing an important role as I say like a tactic for one of the uh, one of the characters is the ball in the dirt scene at the end of which Sam reveals that he's been diagnosed with testicular cancer. He doesn't say anything in the whole scene except for the, those final like three lines I think. And the baseball action that precedes that, which is this intense ball in the dirt drill for catchers, is essential for the arc of that scene. So, yeah, I think that was a little bit that was maybe the the more difficult part, but also the really interesting part, the part that would draw people in and sort of tie the whole thing together. If I'm writing this play and I am making choices about how much, you know, actual baseball to put into this, uh, then I'm constantly playing a game with myself of like, how much can I realistically get some actors to learn in the time they're going to have. What was your level of worry about that? And, you know, kind of how did you talk yourself through that part of it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's a good question. Yeah, big, uh, big worry, I would say, about that. <laughs> There's a, a, a small cross-section of the baseball and theater worlds. Very small. Um, it's you, actually. It might You're the one. <laughs> I think that's me. <laughs> and what's more, I've seen sports plays or athletic plays that do not achieve the physical aspect as well as it needs to be achieved. And maybe it could be that that bothers me more than it bothers other people because I spent years and years in sports world and I still, I like coach and stuff like that. So I'm still in it. But yeah, so that was a big concern of mine. But one of the reasons I wrote it, one of the reasons I thought this is worth writing is because I had a, a buddy of mine I went to school with was a drama major really talented actor, a guy called Chris Stevens. He's in California now. And he was also on the varsity baseball team at the college I went to. And I thought, okay, so he's out there. There must be a couple other people who have a baseball background. And then I tried to include, the baseball that I've included is something that with the decent coach basically in the room, you could get the actors up to scratch if they've had, you know, a little bit of baseball experience or, or if they're just sort of naturally coordinated athletic people. Yeah. And it becomes their nightly warm up. They incorporate instead of doing, I don't know, whatever vocal exercises you would normally see backstage, the, right. the baseball stuff becomes their exactly. nightly warm up. Yeah. Yeah. It would be, it would be part of your fight call kind of. 
Yeah. Baseball calls, baseball captain. Baseball calls. Yeah. I mean, um, that's the dream. That's the dream. I would love, <laughs> I would love for, you know, two rehearsals a week to be spent outside playing baseball. Oh yeah. And like a, a pickup rehearsal turns into a pickup game. Yeah. 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 Perfect. At the risk of making you brag, do you have a particular part of this play that you're like, especially fond of doesn't necessarily have to be, I think this is objectively the best part, though you can certainly name that out if you want to could be, I worked hard for this part. This part is uh, something I've been wanting to write for a long time. Anything like that? Do you, are there moments in this play that really stand out to you? Yeah, I, I guess I would highlight two moments at the, at the end of the play. And I think this can be maybe overlooked in reading it sometimes just because stage directions are often skimmed. But at the, the end of the play, probably the climax of the play is this long sort of like wrestling match between the two of the boy, between uh, Jamie and Sam. Yeah. And, and I had puzzled over what needed to happen at the end of the play and what agreement was reached between the two of them, uh, how the conflict resolved, basically. And I, I, was, I was trying to write scenes that surrounded dialogue and it just nothing... Nothing rung true. It wasn't, it wasn't saying what I wanted to say. And then I thought, there's probably a way to end this play that is physical. And it would be almost sort of betraying the play, which is a very physical play, not to try a physical resolution. Or, yeah, a physical climax, I guess. And so, so then I wrote that sequence of stage directions during which no, no words are spoken, but a, a lot is communicated. <laughs> so, so yeah, I'm, I'm proud of that bit because I sort of worked hard to figure, figure that out. Can we stick with that for just a second? Because sure. like, it's so deliberate. It's like, I might even say choreographed based on my memory of reading those directions. It's, it's almost a step-by-step, -step, here's how the fight goes kind of thing. And some people would err on the side of like, you know what, I'm going to leave that up to a fight choreographer. The necessity for being that deliberate, why was that really important? Uh, well, in general, I do try to do the former, which or the latter, I guess, which is to leave, leave as much up as I can to the designers. But I, I understood that fight between them as a kind of conversation. I think there's a lot of room still for interpreting what exactly it all means. But I thought that there should be some uh, some structure that resembled a conversation of some kind, mm. because otherwise I thought it might fall to the background as I, I th yeah, I thought it might not seem as important as as it was or as it is. Right. It could run the risk of just seeming like and then there's a big emotional cathartic explosion. Yeah. But it's a communication. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and sorry, I derailed you from saying the second thing, the second moment. Oh, yeah. A, a late addition to the play, which actually I don't even think that you read originally, depending on what I submitted. But Claire, who is Sam's mother, who was added while I was at the Malay Colony when I was doing edits for this, is played by the same actor who plays Jamie's mother. And there's a scene between them and she's very different than Jamie's mother. Jamie's mother is a bit of a mess and Sam's mother is a law professor and um, they have their life together basically. And she, there's a scene where she basic, where she has to come to Sam and she sort of, you know, bears her heart a little bit. She, uh, she has to be much more vulnerable than she's used to being in pursuit of wanting to help her son through this, make her son 
happy if she can, uh, despite this really tough circumstances that he's in. And I, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm proud of that scene because maybe because the character is closest to my own mother. Um, so it's a little bit you know, more difficult to write that kind of scene when, when the person is close to someone you know. So yeah, I'm proud of that scene. That actually gets right into the next thing I was going to ask about, which was, it sounds like you're still actively working on this thing. Uh, you know, a lot of times when I interview a playwright about whatever play they're working on, they're at a place where they're like, you know what, it's pretty much done. Little tweaks would happen in the rehearsal room, but I think we're pretty much there. As well as you can gauge this kind of thing, uh, how, how done is this? I think it's more done than most of most of my plays. <laughs> yeah, I feel at this point, I feel satisfied with where it's at. I'm sure that we'll get through this rehearsal process for this stage reading at the landing. And I'll realize that, you know, there's some some little part of some scene that I'd like to touch up or something like that. But I uh, I am pleased with where it's at. And I think fine, it, it's, it's now at that point where you risk overworking it, overthinking it. If I knew more about baseball, I would offer some kind of baseball analogy about how if you practice too much, you'll blow out your arm or something. <laughs> well, yeah, that, that, that works. In the responses to the play so far, has there been a response you've gotten a lot of? Anything that you've been surprised by? Anything that you wish you'd gotten a response on that you haven't heard yet? I, I wouldn't say that there's, I mean, you know, there's obvious things like people say, wow, this is really sad, which it is. But I guess maybe a response that I haven't heard yet and that I'll hear more of now that Sam's mother is also in the play, her name is Claire, uh, is is a reaction to the the role of the mothers in the play and the theme of motherhood, the theme of caring, which is not just played out between the boys and their moms, but also between the two boys, obviously. And I think, like I said earlier, I think that is sort of the glue of the play. Uh, and I think that's where a lot of the stakes of the play come from too, is from the presence of their mothers. And yeah, I'm curious about what, uh, I'm curious to watch the actors in, in those moments of the play. And yeah, in general, I'd be curious to hear about people's reactions to, to the mothers. In a perfect world, you get productions of this. What does a production look like? Feel free to get into any aspect of this, the venue, the audience, the creative team, the overall look and feel of it. Like I said before, I think the baseball action is as fully realized as possible. And obviously you need a, you need a space big enough and a budget uh, that allows it. Um, but that's not totally prohibitive. The baseball action I included can be achieved in a medium sized space, let's say. And then you can always drop a cage down on, onto the stage. Um, I've been in lots of warehouse training spaces where cages drop down and they pull back up and, and that's totally plausible. And so you could have baseballs flying around inside the cage and be totally safe. That's what I'd really love to see. And uh, other than that, you know, I think it's, I think it's quite an intimate play. I think it's a pretty simple play. Uh, and you hope that some really talented people get their hands on it, basically. You the know. fourth wall is a batting cage. In a, yeah. I put this question in the, the prepped questions. I don't want to pressure you into having to give like some refined take on baseball movies. But mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> if you're feeling it, this script gave me occasion to think about so many baseball movies that I've grown up on. I think about them before I think about the actual game. I think about like the Sandlot and the League of Their Own and stuff like that. But from someone who actually knows the game, do you have some essential baseball flicks? 
Yeah, I mean, The Sandlot is iconic. Highly recommend The Sandlot if you haven't seen it. Uh, it doesn't matter. You don't need to like baseball to like that movie. That's a, it's a great, great movie. But I have to say that I, in general, I'm turned off by sports movies in general, baseball movies, purely because the sports action is so often botched. It's so often, mm. uh, it's funny, like you get, you get like amazing stunt people in these movies who can make like incredible feats of athleticism look so good. But when it comes to just getting someone who can, who can cr- crouch down in a catcher's crouch convincingly has been really hard for, for Hollywood. <laughs> so, um, so, but there are a couple, I mean, for the love of the game, have you seen that one? Yeah. Yeah. That's, I, I really, really like that movie and the way that they worked around the baseball action, they included actual footage from the perfect game that the, the movie is about and they did a good job shooting it in such a way so that the baseball action looked for the most part uh, really, really great. And then of course the story there is, is really wonderful, but a sports movie, I wanted to highlight this because I don't feel like this movie gets enough credit at all. The sports movie that is awesome in, in, I think in every, in every way, including the sports action is the movie version of Friday night lights, um, which is about Texas football. It is so good that Billy Bob Thornton plays the head coach he gives a speech at the end of that movie about being perfect is what it's about. He says something to the effect of, you know, being perfect is being able to like look your teammate in the eyes and know that you did everything you could for them. And it's just, like, you know, it's one of those, it makes me cry every single time I watch it. It's such an amazing, it's great writing, great action. And people, more, more people should watch that movie. Friday Night Lights. Yeah, Friday Night Lights with Billy Bob Thornton. First watch The Landings Reading of the baseball gods, but then Friday Night Lights. Exactly. (laughs) Do you have any additional projects uh, you want to plug while you've got the the opportunity, the pulpit? Sure. I should give a shout out to, I'm an ensemble member at the Bramble Theater Company in Chicago, which is a brand, or new, not brand new, theater company in Chicago uh, with my class from the school Steppenwolf, which is Steppenwolf's training program. They are awesome. And I think they're going to, we are going to do some pretty cool stuff. And then I've got people I need to thank who helped me develop the play. I've already mentioned the Marble House Project and the Malay Colony. They're both really, really cool residencies. If they're, they're for the writers who are interested in residencies, you guys should look them up because they're really, really generous, great people. And then actors who helped me develop it and dear friends of mine, Hillary Williams, Bianca Phipps, Jannard Washington, Carissa Morel Myers, Haley Bolathon, Susie Kroikenberg, Danny Breslin, and Wendy McLeod. And those are all my shout outs. I love that you included all the actors who helped along the way. Uh, I feel like the myth of the singular genius is something I'll take any chance to, to shatter. Um, totally especially in the context of a script about baseball and about teamwork that you would acknowledge the team that helped get it to where it is. Yeah, exactly. Is there anything else in terms of like stuff you were hoping to get to? Um, I took a few notes here. Let me check. Oh yeah. Yeah. There is one thing. Um, I think the main theme of the play is how young men manage vulnerability. Um, And there's sort of a trope here that I don't really like that, that says something like, men aren't good at being vulnerable. That was something I wanted to touch on in the play because I think there's truth in that. I think that there's, there's some difficulty, particularly for young men around vulnerability. But I also think that 
young men, maybe particularly in the sports world, have a different but equally valuable way to show vulnerability and to communicate vulnerability. And it may not even include saying anything, but it's, it's, it's achieved by way of, you know, the smallest jokes or just simple sort of looks even, you know, eye contact, that, that kind of thing. And it's equally profound and meaningful. And that's something I wanted to, that's something I wanted to touch on in the play, that it wasn't sort of a critique of young men dealing with hard stuff. It was sort of like, it was an attempt to show, to show what it's like for two young guys to have real love for each other and how they show that, even though it's, you know, they never say, I love you. It's communicated in other and arguably more profound ways. Yeah, I think that's a big part of the authenticity that makes this one stick, is this feeling like, as you said, the way we tend to trope this is there are the men who are good at dealing with emotions and then the men who just can't. Um, And if you are in any sense conventionally masculine, you fall into the latter category. And so to see young men who are functionally dealing with those things, who don't fit that 2D stereotype, but also don't eschew uh, like our understanding of like a jock culture and a jock personality and being able to capture that is one of the things that gives this a real feeling of like being a fly on the wall for a walk of life that I haven't lived. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm really, that means, that means a lot to me because that is, that was definitely something I was trying to articulate the show. So thank you. Well, yeah, well, thank you. Yeah, of course. Music for today's episode was composed by Juan Sebastian Cruz. The Landing Theatre New Works podcast is a production of the Landing Theatre Company under artistic director David Rainey. For more information about the theatre, visit landingtheatre.org. Thank you for listening. See you next time.